Good morning, Sarah Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman, a.k.a. Gina Longobardi, a.k.a. Oh. Trina Coburn. That's true. And we did have a Gina. You, I just saw you posted on Twitter that Gina Lola Brigida died. Yeah, she's a fox, huh? She's sort of that quintessential Italian movie star look. You know, there was uh, obviously Sophia Loren, who's still alive and still with us, uh, Gina Lola Brigida, and um, oh, what's the other one that had the incredible hair? Hmm. I'll find a picture of her and I'll put it in the show. Are you talking about the woman in La Dolce Vita? No, that was, it wasn't that, that was a Swedish actress, wasn't it? Oh, Oh, you're right. You're right. We're getting off to a great start here. Um, No, but I saw that she died. Yes, Gina Logabardi was one of my pen names. That is correct. And then Trina Coburn, Trina Coburn was another pen name. And that came from um, a character named Trina in one of the first novels I read when I was a kid called, I think it was Down These Mean Streets by Piri Thomas. And then um, Coburn from James Coburn, because he was a cool dude when I was a kid. I just want our listeners to remember that while we have known you as Nancy Rommelman, you have lived other lives. There are stories that you have not been telling us. And our work here is to crack the door open on those alternate personalities. Not not today specifically, but as a longer project. Well, I, I want to just actually move into the future. Let's leave the past in the past, shall we, Sarah? Well, let's agree to disagree, Gina, Trina, Nancy, (laughs) and we'll see how this goes for you. You're going to regret ever telling me that. Ah, Yeah, that's all right. Hey, I'm sorry. Um, I'm writing a lot. What could I tell you? Speaking of our last episode, The Romance of Being a Total Fraud was the name of it. I had a couple, I had a couple, like I had one correction. We, 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 uh, often make mistakes. Yes. And I'd like to institute more of a of a corrections uh, tradition because it's important for us as journalists to get the facts right. Um, in my portion of the episode where I talked about a controversy at a St. Paul University, I mispronounced the university Hamline. It is Hamlin. Right. But that is a, you know, it is spelled Hamline. So it's a, it's a, it's an honest mistake, but yes, Hamlin. Okay. All of my mistakes are honest. Yes. But that one is, is probably more understandable than others for sure. Um, and then I had, I wanted to return to this issue of having sex with a dead chicken, if it's all right with you. I know yes, this is I, early in the episode. Well, I haven't been able to really think about anything else. So yeah, I'd appreciate it. <laughs> Yeah, I will admit to you that I spent a fair bit of time this past week thinking about the ethical conundrum that I mentioned in our last episode, which was originally dropped by Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Righteous Mind. Um, It is a scenario in which, you know, the question is, if a man... And it wasn't just you. It wasn't like if you, the listener, it was like if a man wants to have sex with a dead chicken, is it all right? And, you know, I used this example uh, to illuminate my own complete degenerate view of the world, which is like, I don't really care. And I think it seems wrong, but but I can't make a good argument for why it should be 
outlawed or something like that. So anyway, one of our readers, we have a wonderful reader community. Uh, I'm sorry, not a reader community, a listener community. Hello, 21st century. Um, we have a wonderful listener community, a commenting community. Uh, one of our listeners made the observation in our comments that if Jonathan Haidt had said, had used a human instead, you know, basically, if he had said, is it okay to have sex with a dead human, that it would have been very clear, it would have tripped all our moral, um, our little moral trip wires, because it would have been clear, like, even though this doesn't, you know, it's not technically the, the, the person's not going to know, um, it, it, is obviously so obviously wrong. And when I first read that, I thought, ooh, that person's got me, you know, like, like that's a really good point. But then I kept thinking about it and I was like, wait a minute, this isn't exactly right because we know cannibalism is, is wrong and we would never eat a dead person unless we were stranded, uh, in the middle of nowhere as you have permission to eat my dead body. Right. Um, but, but we do eat we do eat dead chickens. So what we're saying with this example is if you think it's wrong to have sex with a dead chicken, what you're saying is that it's okay to slaughter chickens and eat them, but not to fuck them after they're dead. Do you see what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, I I it's interesting. Like the whole sex with a dead I think it is the case. My understanding is that especially kids that grow up on farms, boys that grow up yes, on farms. Yes, the farm. Yes. There are there is sheep entering or whatever. It is something that happens. Do we think it is the right thing? No, I can't walk around saying I think this is a great thing to do, but it's something that's going to happen and that people are not going to talk about. So Jonathan Haidt raises the question, like, are you okay with it? And it's almost as though it's like a tacit, like, no, we're not okay with it, but we know it's going to happen. Whereas the chicken eating is right out in the open. I mean, you go to the supermarket, there is your chicken eating. Though people will argue that ethically it is wrong. I put something yesterday on um, on a Twitter that you got to love a naturopath that tells you to eat more red meat because my my naturopath did tell me to do that. And I mean, I don't I don't have a problem with eating meat, but man, people were not happy with that. They were like, how can you do this? This is terrible for the planet. It's completely unethical. And your naturopath is a quack. I'm like, to you, but, (laughs) you know, not, not to me. So what do you, have you come up with a, uh, have you come up with a final conclusion of what you think? I, I mean, the thing is, is that I still think it's morally okay to have sex with a dead chicken. And I would like someone to make the moral argument to me to persuade me otherwise, because I am not comfortable sitting in this place. I mean, persuade me otherwise. Why is it wrong? Because I actually don't think it's unethical to eat animals. Some people do. Now, if you're a vegan or even a vegetarian, and you think it's wrong to have sex with a dead chicken, I think you have a good leg to stand on. But if you eat animals, I don't understand why you think it's not okay to have sex with their dead corpses. <laughs> why am I talking about this? <laughs> why did I do this to us? Well, I think it's interesting. In uh, in your responses, people give, give the argument. We'll talk about it. I want to, in terms of uh, animal killing, I will say this morning I ran across a very quick little piece 
that the director, Michael Bay, who I actually met when I was like 20 in Italy, a million years ago. Uh, well, yeah, no, we were not, he wasn't any, he wasn't a filmmaker or anything. There was like my, my mother's friend's kid. It wasn't like we were whatever. Um, but, um, he's under, he's under attack because it is said that while he was filming in Italy, he killed a pigeon. And I was like, not a pigeon, not a pigeon. Did they realize that people freaking died on movie sets? Like back in my day, we had to walk a mile in the snow for some guy to die on the set of Twilight Zone. Wait, wait. Oh, that was that was a terrible story. Vince Morrow. But um, yeah, I shouldn't have made a joke about uh, that story. R.I.P. guy from the Twilight Zone. Um, no, it was apparently so I'm like, okay, what did he do? You know, because they they definitely on movie sets, especially big movie sets, you have to be very, very careful. You know, there's like the snake wrangler and the rabbit wrangler and the horses. If a horse falls down, it's done very humanely. And I'm like, what did they just like kill a pigeon? Like, well, screw it. We'll just like stamp this pigeon through the breast. But no, what it was apparently is that a dolly during a dolly shot, you know, you roll the dolly with sure. the, the camera on it. Um, apparently a pigeon was like run over. That's the story. I don't know. He's like denying any that idea. Yeah, how yeah. many like can, can how I, many birds fly into windows each okay. year? Okay, can I just say like Cra- smash your windows, smash all your windows? They're killing the birds. Do it now. Okay, that do you know how many fucking pigeons there are? Has anyone been to Venice? Has anyone been to New York City? It's like it's like Humble that breath. sign that Seinfeld episode where it's like they they, they hit and hit, somebody hits a pigeon. I don't know George or Jerry hits a pigeon, and it's like I thought we had a deal with the pigeons. Like they would. I I was driving once in Portland, and a pigeon flew into my windshield and died. Like okay, they're big. I, they're big I, suckers. I I think that the idea that he would be under the microscope for killing a pigeon is actually probably about something else. Well, that's not even counting how many brain cells Michael Bay has killed (laughs) in all of us from his movies. (laughs) That's what I'm mad about. So speaking of movies, uh, Mm, I can't can't remember if you told me or I told you, but I definitely do recall my daughter telling me that I should watch this movie Triangle of Sadness. I think I told you and you're like, oh my God, I saw this movie. It's insane. You have to watch this movie. So I did watch this movie and it is insane and fantastic and fantastic and so much fun and so much food for thought okay and i'm you know what we're just going to put a link to it we'll put i think we may have actually put a link in the um in the previous episode notes we'll put it again of course but um one thing that you and i started talking about with this movie is like what up with all the cruise ship themes lately you you know it used to just be the love boat back in the day the love boat. Um, Soon we'll be making another round. <laughs> That's for our special, special episode. We'll oh sing the whole God. thing for you guys. But um, no, it was so we've got obviously we've got uh we've got Triangle of Sadness, we've got the Glass Onion, right? There was cruising. Yeah, they take that. a cruise ship and on that cruise ship, and then there's White, White Lotus, Lotus, White Lotus, which is and I asked you, I think when we were texting or something um and you said it was something about class you think yeah, i think it's like- an eat the rich genre yeah. that's yeah. become very popular lately um there is something you know cruise ships have always been emblematic of a certain kind of wealth and profligacy you know i'm reminded of the david foster wallace oh, God. essay um which is called something else but is better known as um a supposedly fun thing i'll never do again um it's his famous cruise ship essay if you've never read it it's tremendous it's probably one of the best essays written in the late 
in the nineties. Uh, maybe it was the early aughts, but I think it was the nineties. No, no, it was it was I know, and I can tell you why I know it was the nineties. But go ahead. Well, right, so I, because you and Michael Bay discussed it. Yeah, no, because so I'm going to pause it. Yes, yeah, so like cr- cruising is like eat the rich, and certainly there are very very fancy cruises, but really cruises are something like, in my estimation, kind of like um. Kind of like more like a middle class thing. Like, oh, let's save up and we'll go for a cruise and everything's taken care of. And we don't need to like be particularly like make a lot of plans. And and I I actually, okay, I completely understand that like desire to go in and all the food is done and you we don't have to decide which islands in the Caribbean we're hopping to. They're just going to take us and we're going to be there for eight hours. They're going to be back in our comfortable stateroom. I understand the desire while finding it absolutely horrible. And I'll tell you how I know about the David Foster Wallace, because a magazine I used to write for, which we shall not name, uh, sent me on a cruise. And uh, it was a very, very, very fancy cruise. And I um, I had, um, let's say, very mixed feelings about the cruise. And I wrote, I wrote it as I would have written it, let's say, for the LA Weekly. You know, sort of nuanced and what was interesting and what wasn't and right. what was happening, you know, with the happy, angry people when you got onto shore and they were shaking their, their wear. It, I, I wrote it that way. And my editor got back to me and said, Nancy, you're supposed to like the cruise. Oh, no, you were supposed to like the cruise. I was supposed to like the cruise, which I would have realized had I not been influenced by um, David Foster Wallace and my own desire to write the way I wanted to write. Um, So what I had to do, in fact, to rewrite that piece was I had to create a second persona. And I did in like the second part. Ooh, Gina or Trina? It was probably... It was probably along the lines more of, of Gina because yeah. Trina's kind of like a city girl with a sure. lot of dirt under her fingernails and uh pro What's heads. Trina like? Trina wears like, she's hot. She's wearing a gown. Actually, I will tell you. Uh, so when we had to go to the captain's dinner, um, we had been eating so much because anybody that has been on a cruise knows that what you do, there is so much food. And this was like extremely fancy cruise. So there was like incredible food. I gained seven pounds in one week. That's and strong. That, when That's I, strong work. The, the captain's, um, the captain's dinner, I put up, my husband went to zip up my dress and the zipper exploded. At which nice. point I <sighs> rang the little concierge bell where they like ran up and grabbed the dress and sewed it for me and had it back for me. And then I just couldn't really inhale or exhale very much the rest of the night. Um, But in any case, I think it is not, I mean, it is an eat the rich thing the way it's presented in these, in these pictures. I mean, it's so, so, so luxe. It's the tip of luxury, but basically cruises just sound to me like a complete like germ bomb. And in fact, another article I was going to write at one point, but never did because I couldn't get enough corroboration was something called the cruise ship option. And the cruise ship option is, um, let's say Mr. and Mrs. Lee, they're in their seventies, maybe early eighties. They get on a cruise ship in wherever in, in Florida and they're going to cruise around the Caribbean. And then when they get back, when the cruise ends, Mr. and Mrs. Lee's stateroom is locked from the inside, but they, they're not there. And Mr. and Mrs. Lee have taken the cruise ship option and they have, they have dipped because, you know, that that's one way they're going to do it. And in fact, this does happen. People will just sort of like 
disappear. This is like um, a short story or a novel you were going to write. No, this was an article I was actually going to write for oh, Reason really Magazine. Happened. Well, no, it, it does happen. But what happens when I started looking into it, I realized it was kind of an irresponsible article to put into the world because while I could find yeah. a few examples of it, yeah. I really couldn't find more. But what I will tell you happens on cruise ships, and this is sort of well known, there's just incredibly crazily bad behavior on cruise ships. Yeah. First of all, people do fall overboard. Like, Yes. Not open, not open bar. infrequently. Um, there are people that try to commit murders. There, you know, cruise ships are famously, you know, like the ship is owned by Corsica, but it's registered in yep. Bosnia, but it's actually got a crew from, you know, Somalia. And you can't, there's like no accountability. Um, there are several, I'll try to find the links to them. There are several really interesting websites that I did deep dives on, no pun intended, um, called like Cruise Ship Confidential and other places where you can read like day by day about the kind of crazily terrible things that can happen on cruise ships, which makes sense because millions and millions of people are taking cruises. So of course, and there's unlimited open bars. I mean, come on. Yeah. Anyway, cruises are, they are, you're right that they are, um, while they're opulent, they're also deeply middle American. Yes. um, Yes. And have a kind of almost fast food, uh, yes. quality. But, you know, the thing about cruises is that there's many levels. I mean, like in when I was growing up, there was a Carnival Cruise Line that had that was sort of like affordable cruises. Um, So it was like this luxury thing that anybody could do. And you would have these commercials. Um, I think Kathy Lee Gifford was on the Carnival Cruise Line commercials. And, um, you know, they are definitely something that is appealing to your like retired or older couples. So you'll see a lot of like constant cruisers that go on all the different ships and, and, and yeah, the amenities are great. Somebody's cooking for you. It's incredibly indulgent. I've been on two different cruises. One, when I was about 18 or 19 with a friend, a rich friend took me on a cruise to the Caribbean that was um, just really corny. And I had not read the the Wallace story yet. But when I read it, it so perfectly captured my objection to that entire experience, which I felt bad about because somebody was footing my bill, but I still kind of found it odious. Then in my, when I was about 31, my family took a cruise on a kind of higher and elite uh, cruise line to uh, Estonia and St. Petersburg and Helsinki. It was like a, it was actually really nice. And we, we had a great time, but, but you're right. The, um, the opportunity for bad things to happen is really high. I'm sure that's why they're also being chosen as narrative settings because you have this combination of, of kind of high stakes and bad behavior. You're out on the open seas, but you have the feeling of total comfort. So you're drinking to excess, you're eating to excess, there's, you're cooped up with people in your family, there's fights. The number of like datelines that take place on a cruise ship, right? Um, yeah, I mean, the thing is that, of course, you know, just as much bad behavior is happening in New York City, of course, but you're in this hermetically sealed environment. That's right. And in terms of feeling, I mean, the the my favorite thing about the cruise was sitting at night uh, on our little balcony and looking out like into the complete black expanse and saying, "Okay, if you fell in the water here, 
Yeah. Could you swim to that light, which is like seven miles away? And of course, no, you you probably no, you, you, you wouldn't. But it was actually just the sort of um sort of the majesty and the terror in one of That's looking good. out into that blackness. That was for me really the only kind of interesting thing about the cruise. And I I don't think I ever want to take another cruise again. I I was no, I no. Um, I'm but, I'm not going to rule it out, but I do get um, yeah. seasick and me too. Um, but there are some places like the the coast of Alaska and things like that that it's just like you, it's much better to do by cruise. You really can't do it by uh, by car because there aren't cars that go there. So, um, but we we should clarify that Triangle of Sadness, which is one of my favorite titles, maybe of all time. Like I just love it. I don't. Yeah, it, it's it's a it's an English version of a French film. It's an English title for a French film that was actually Sans Filtre, which is without filter. Um, this is uh, written and directed by Robin, I'm sorry, Ruben Oostland. The O has an umlaut on it. Oostland. is Swedish. And um, did you know that, and it, and it concerns several people on a cruise ship, probably the most famous actor in this is Woody Harrelson. He plays this really amazingly, uh, just sort of like psychically and soul, soul-trapped captain who keeps Commun- drinking com- himself. Communist. Yeah, and he's a communist. <laughs> it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, but did you know that one of the actresses in this film died last year. I know, I know. She was, so she, you have to tell me her name. I, I remember her boyfriend's name. I don't remember in terms her of- Her name in real life is Charlby Dean. Charlby, yes. I don't know, Charlby. Yeah. Dean, and she was 32 years old when she died of bacterial sepsis that had, we think, um, come from an earlier surgery she'd had. And uh, she is gorgeous, She's just so gorgeous. She plays a sort of phone-obsessed social media influencer in the movie. And and the reason I kind of, I mean, besides just wanting to, to tell the listeners about this movie, the reason I wanted to talk about this movie is because of a character in the movie named Carl, who plays her boyfriend in the film. Um, his real name, the actor's name, he's a British actor named Harrison, Harris Dickinson. And he is he kind of opens the movie. He's a male model. And um, the triangle of sadness has to do with his forehead, which according to the, uh, to the people that are auditioning him for some particular advertising campaign. And he struck me when I was watching the film as such a, such a modern character, uh, so a, a modern male character, sort of, yes. it almost is a, is a caricature. You know, you hear about, you know, back in the day when men were men and women were women and whatever that means. Um, but, you know, there are certain characteristics you might associate with men, maybe more than women, maybe not, whatever, you know, sort of um, um, strength and uh, maybe, I don't know, like decision- Penises. Penises, um, taking not taking care of things, but like putting the bill, they're breadwinners. Putting the bill or being comfortable, even if they're not going to do it, being comfortable in that role, being comfortable in the breadwinning role. To whether they're very good at it or not is maybe not the question, but somehow that that idea is a that role is something that you can step into either automatically, happily, reluctantly, whatever. Well, in this character, this person is so confused 
about what he is supposed to and allowed to do, and not so much just in the modern way of like, can I touch you there? Uh, it's just this absolute sort of irritability, but also um, puppyish kind of uh, weakness, but then being angry at himself for being weak, but then being angry at everybody else for, for making him weak, but maybe not. And now he then gets thrown. Okay. So when we're talking about like picking up a dinner check, okay, this can just be sort of like cranky or you can, uh, you can make me make some, some deals with your, your partner, which they do at the beginning of the way. It's like, okay, well, maybe we'll have this particular arrangement that works for us. But then you throw this person in an environment where he actually needs to step up. It's a crisis. Like, okay, so I've talked about frequently um, when people are in an emergency situation. When you put someone in an emergency situation, yeah, they they most people will make terrible decisions. They don't think. They 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 panic. They fall yeah. down. And who do you want to be with? In, and we we've talked about this. Do you want to be with in an emergency situation? We're trapped on top of the mountain, Sarah. The plane has crashed. Do you want to be with the person who is like, oh my god, I can't my Right. Or do you want to be with the person that's like, okay, look, 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 we're going to do this. You guys stay here. I'm going to take care of this. You, you're going to help me do this. And like, try to be organized and try to make, try to save everybody's life. Well, frankly, A, I want to be with the second person and B, I want to be the second person. Okay. That is very yeah. important to me. So we've got this, right, this guy, Carl, this character, Carl. Now they are in an emergency situation and the way he behaves and what he does is, well, he saves his own skin before. Absolutely, he's a survivor. He's a survivor. He will save his own skin, but in a way that also basically sort of makes him, would you say, a concubine? I mean, what would you, what would you, and we're not going to give away what this is, but what would you? Yeah, that's a good word for it. I yeah. mean, also just like. He's leveraging the power that he has, which is his looks and youth and virility in order to survive. And in another environment, a man in that situation might have leveraged his youth and strength to kind of gather food or, uh, you know, do something else that was going to help them survive. But he's got his looks and so, but he, but he, okay. So he has his looks, but he also the reason he doesn't have anything else is because he doesn't cultivate anything else. I mean, no, most men have not. I mean, the, the number of modern men that don't know how to fish, hunt, uh, gather things—it's unbelievable. This is not uncommon. This is not uncommon at all. You ask men well, how many of them? No, seriously. Let's ask our listeners how many of them know how to do things like make a fire or um, fish and hunt for food in the wild. I mean, I am I can't tell you the number of my male friends that are like lawyers and intellects and they don't have any idea what how to work their car. And it's it's a great shame for them. They 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 know that they've lost a certain but it's the way I, it's like, I can't cook. Right, like so I've, I, I've lost the feminine arts in the way that they have lost the masculine arts. That's fast. So this is really interesting to me because, all right, so I'm not, I, 
Uh, as you know, I have not lost the feminine arts. I, I feel like I'm very, I have all the like the nice good wife skills just because I like to do these things. It's not because I'm like, oh, I really feel like shit. It's just like, it's something that I like to do. But also if I was stuck in a situation like that, the first thing I'd start doing is gathering some firewood or saying like, okay, I don't know how to fucking fish. You know what? I'm going to learn to fucking fish. And anybody can do that on that island. And he chooses not to. He chooses not to take any sort of fucking challenge at all. And I'll tell you what, you know, if we were stuck somewhere and you said to me, I can't cook, I'd be like, Sarah, go out and get some fucking firewood. Like, I don't care that you can't cook. You can do something, right? Well, first of all, I would be in charge on this island. So I would be telling you <laughs> that you're going to cook whatever it is that I gather. I'm just, I'm going to have a power struggle it. right now. I would do it. That's the thing. Everybody has I'm a to, very good leader. Everybody has to bring something to the party. Okay. And in that particular situation, this character of Carl decided that he was not going to stretch himself in any way, shape, or form. And I one other thing I'll just push back on. I will I I I'm I will say I got to say at maybe not in my New York life, but in my previous life on the West Coast, I would say almost every dude I know did know how to do all those things. Build a fire, fix a car. My husband always carries a knife constantly and you would not realize how many times a day you actually need a knife. It's Yeah, the, I mean I I have a my broad sweeping generalization um comes with the caveat hashtag not all men. And definitely on in outdoor play, like the Pacific Northwest and also the West Coast and Texas as well. You see yeah. more men that have those qualities. Um so obviously there are men who can and do and I respect that and I don't mean to to uh, ignore your lived experience. But I do think that the reason that things like um, Bear Grylls and some of the other like uh, and Alive and uh, Survival and Naked in the Woods or whatever the fuck that reality show is, like there's all these reality shows about surviving in the wild. And I think one of the reasons why they're so compelling is because they are illustrating behaviors that many of us just don't know anymore. I mean, it's the same exoticism that Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous used to be. Um, somebody that can make their way in the wild for 30 days, 60 days. We just don't know how to do that anymore as a collective society. I'm not saying certain men don't. And when they do, I think it's super hot. I tend to be drawn to the men that can do things with their hands variety. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god oh my um, god i just turned that into a dirty joke like a dirty old woman i take it all back um, um but uh, you know i i but i think but but i am a a, per, a a person who's lived a life of the mind a lot of my friends have as well and and they don't know how to do those things they've outsourced them they've outsourced them to technology and people that uh whose time is paid less than theirs. You know, a lot of men don't mow their own lawns. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's also a lot of women too. I mean, I don't mean to say that's, a, I mean, this is, this is one of those weird things where gender roles have broken down. Right. I mean, I just said men don't mow their own lawns as though that is something men have to do. Women can mow the lawn, but it's the rare woman that mows the lawn. Yeah. It's, it's something they gravitate toward. It's like my husband never asked me to clean the gutters. Like he didn't say, like, get up there. You didn't clean the gutters this fall. It's like, you know, it's what, it's what he did. Um, I think it also has to do with money and class. Like if you grow up, you, you have to learn to do things. My Tava's dad had to learn how to fix his own car. Totally. He, he had to do it. So he taught me to fix my car. I was, I'm really grateful for that. Not that I have a car that it's now too electronic, but you know, with an older car, you could do it. And why should you not be able to do that? 
Because you don't have to. I mean, because there's a lot of things that you need to know and there's a lot of time you need to argue on the internet over who has right. it worse. Yeah, that's right. Um, <laughs> Carl, Carl uh, reminded you of someone else that's been in the media. You were making like a like an interesting parallel between the character of Carl and someone that's been really dominating headlines recently. Do you want to talk so, about that? I do. So um, Carl, we should mention, is a ginger red hair. And um, who else has been in the news a lot who has red hair, Sarah? Um, Ed Sheeran. Um, no, I'm j- I just pulled that name out of nowhere. I was trying to think of another redhead. Um, Harry, Prince, Prince Harry. 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 What's Harry's last name? Uh, Harry. Windsor? H- Harry. Win- Is it really Windsor? Well, House of Windsor. Duke of- like that's Duke- their last name? Duke of Sussex, um, Harry House of Windsor. I he's that's got a very weird that I. I mean, you don't need honestly. You don't need a last name. It's like no, the the no. musical artist Prince, as Prince so, Rogers Nelson. Who cares? It's so, just Prince, and this is just Prince Harry. But he's and he's now the Duke of Sussex, I guess, whatever that is. And well, he is. He has put out a memoir which is called Spare. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. is on track to be one of the biggest selling books of all time. So I basically didn't have any particular feelings for the monarchy or Harry or William or anything like that. Um, I was not interested particularly in diving in to any of this. You had told me that you had listened to about 10 minutes of his uh, of his memoir and really couldn't listen to it. And I kind of didn't have any particular interest. But then yesterday on uh, Barry Weiss's Free Press, uh, there was an article by the former editor-in-chief of the Daily Mail. Uh, his name is Martin Clark- Clarkson, I think, Clarkin. And um, he was basically talking about how, oh, you know, everything we always suspected about Harry is true. And it's kind of a snippy and snipey thing, but basically saying that Harry has such a thing against the media. And it just is, it's so completely obvious and and really he's in, insinuating wrong in many ways. He called like the media like a, a boil on the arse of humanity or something like that. But okay, whatever, I read it. But what I started to read after that were some links. And one was to um, the great Helen Lewis, who is the creator of that podcast, The New Gurus, which I now want to listen to desperately, which I think you have listened to part of it. She wrote a piece for The Atlantic about kind of a case against the monarchy and and about the golden cage that Harry was consigned to. Um, I read a piece by Patty Davis, uh, former President Ronald Reagan's daughter, about her regret in having written a memoir so early. And I said to myself, Mm. I kind of decided, let me take a listen to, um, to spare, which I didn't know it. What it refers to is you have an heir, which would be William and a spare, which would be Harry. Okay. I have to say, uh, some of my assumptions and I guess, um, decision-making, if I ever made any about Harry, uh, I'm going to go back on a little bit. I have listened to about um, three quarters of this. I just didn't have time to finish it. So I haven't really gotten into the Meghan Markle part so much, but I have listened to his growing up and about the family and what happened. And I have to say, first of all, the writer of this book is not obviously Harry of Sussex or Windsor, whatever it is. It's J.R. Moinger, J.R. Moinger, who wrote The Tender Bar, 
you know Jerry R. Moringer, right? I do. Right. And he's also a novelist and a journalist. The Tender War is a good book. I liked it. I read it a long time ago. I had a few problems with it, but I liked it. Um, at least the beginning is extremely well-written. It's It like hits every note really, really super well. It then kind of, for me, it's the chapters begin to get a little too short, sort of like maybe because of our short attention spans. Harry is a terrific narrator. He is... I, oh, he's I, a really good narrator. I also listened to it on audiobook, and I have to say his voice is fantastic. He's a great narrator. He's a great narrator, very uh, kind of trustworthy. He hits his... He, it's just it's just really, really well done. I am also going to say that Harry struck me, in a sense, as very American. I know he's oh, yeah. British. He is a young man who kind of, you know wasn't given a ton you you would think you'd have more direction than anybody in the entire world when you are you know the a a a prince of of England of the monarchy but in fact because of what he was going through and his parents and his mother and just the way i mean the the part in the book which you didn't get to the fact that not only did he never hug or kiss his grandmother like the idea would be impossible i'm not saying that anyone's life is dependent on hugging or kissing your grandmother but the sort of rigidity there the rigidity there while you're growing up absolutely a bug under a microscope or a magnifying glass in this particular era when you have access to the internet and you have access to any kind of bad behavior you want at the same time being completely protected he struck me as a kid who went to like Northfield Mount Hermon which is a boarding school with kind of like the naughty kids go right mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and he is going to do what teenagers do which is you try to um hide your bad be- what teenager has not tried to hide their bad behavior from their parents okay even William in this book, who's the good son, does this. But Harry is just, he's kind of reckless. He's kind of sloppy. He makes unbelievably stupid decisions. Now, I'm not saying, at one point he does he does coke, all right? But he doesn't say that. How he, how he introduces this is he's like, well, you know, the, you know, no, our... Um, I know one of the head press people at the palace is like, well, we've been contacted by this tabloid and they say they have pictures of you doing cocaine and it's the queen's Jubilee year. Okay. So it's like kind of a Whoops. big year. And, um, I was like, oh, absolutely not. There's no way. There's absolutely no way. They have pictures of me doing that. No, you call their bluff. You tell them I won't talk to them, blah, blah, blah. And I guess the press back down. He's like, oh, I got them that time. Well, of course I had been doing some coke. And it's like, well, you know, now, he does make the phenomenally what I consider to be just an absolutely idiotic decision of make wearing a um a Nazi uniform and a little like Hitler mustache to a costume party one year. I I don't know when your when your family has been you know you've been Britain and you fought the Nazis. This just seems like a really fucking stupid idea. Yeah, and he totally threw William and Kate under the bus on that one too because he was like, I called them and they said it was great, and it's well, like no. Actually, it was more, it was actually, at least according to him, according to the book, it wasn't like that at all. What happened was that they all got, they got William dressed and he dressed as some like kooky, like ballet bunny, something with a tail. And uh, they didn't have a costume for him. So he went to this costume shop and he, he put it on and he said that they laughed and nobody at the party even said a word about it. Well, I don't know about that. In um, any, it, let me just finish one thing here. So of course. in any case. Harry, and again, I haven't really gotten to the the Meghan Markle part, but he's 
struck me as someone who was just not not particularly super savvy. He was not a great student, which fine, a lot of us aren't. Um, he kind of just struck me as directionless. And then yeah. this directionlessness that was almost codified by the monarchy when he was told, like, you don't really need to do anything. Maybe you actually shouldn't do very much because, you know, you'll have other responsibilities, right? His mother, that situation was something that lacerated him. And he was, you know, following that for a long time, trying to see how he can survive in the world. And it seems to me that he's found the way that he's going to survive. It's a very, oh. it's a very American way. It is a way that clearly there is an appetite for. Uh, it, you, I think you told me this is like slated to go up to like number two best-selling book of the of the twenty first century or whatever it is right now. Um, it may not be what we think of as, um, and certainly what the monarchy would think of as. Um, uh, I don't know, sophisticated or acceptable, but he's going to make his way. And not only is he going to make his way with this, there's talk that he's going to do a second book. Now, oh, I'm sure he will. Um, he'll probably do a third. I mean, good Lord. Now on the other side, you've got people, I was reading this in, um, I think on, uh, is it Huffington post that has like the, it has like a monarchy column, one of the, one of the online sites. And, um, He's, they're like, well, you know, maybe they'll, they'll broker a truce between, uh, you know, between William and between Charles, who, by the way, Charles comes off. Now, this is Harry writing this, comes off incredibly well in this book. I don't know about later on, because I know we're going to get into the Meghan Markle stuff. But throughout, he calls his son, my darling boy. That's what he always calls him, my darling boy. And he comforts him and he stands by him and he comes to him in times of trouble. And I, you know, if, if Harry was just out to make everybody else in his world seem terrible, which is what we've read, it seems to me, in just about every accounting of this, it's not in the book or it's not there so well, you far. haven't finished the book. I think it's I really, I mean, honestly, if you haven't, haven't. gotten to the Meghan Markle place, that's where the split happens. So I, like, I know, but even so, but but if he was going to be loading the deck or putting, you know, thumbing the scale, wouldn't he have earlier on thumbed the scale against his father? I'm agnostic on this. I just, okay. you, you could set somebody up by saying that he's great and then like pull the rug out from underneath him in the last quarter of the book. I mean, it's, it's not, I'm so glad that you listened to as much as you did and you can bring this perspective because I think it's, it's more insightful than um, most of us who are just listening to little audio clips yep. on the internet or sound bites and sounding off about that. So you actually listen to hours and hours and hours. It's like a 15 hour book. Yeah. So I, I tried to get through it by today, but I just, I couldn't, I couldn't yeah. get the time. Um, so, you know, meanwhile, your buddy Sarah got through 10 minutes and, and hit stop. I couldn't do yep. it. And and I'll explain a little bit more why. But I wanted to read a tweet that I saw that I thought really captured a lot of what you were saying that he was he's very American and that his story is a certain has a certain American flair. This was a great tweet. It says Prince Harry's melancholy is tragic because it speaks to the abjection of the entire millennial project from stoner Nazi cosplay to mass murderer with Oedipal complex to anti-racism campaigner, failed post podcaster, self-pitying writer of auto fictions with boring sans serif fonts. 
Um, now, that's meaner than anything you just said. Um, but I think there's... He is emblematic of his generation. In particular, Definitely. this has always been a story about the divide not only in the royal family, but in the culture at large, between duty and family sacrifice and love and personal fulfillment, which is, or individual choice, if you want to put it that way, which is what those those sons in particular, Harry and William, the heir and the spare, uh, which was apparently what their mother called them a lot as a, as a joke, as a loving joke. Um, but, uh, you know, I, okay, so this memoir, you mentioned that J.R. Moringer wrote this, and I am a big fan of Moringer. I, I was asked to write the top five books about alcohol once, and, and I put the tender bar in that list. It is about growing up in a bar when his father was an alcoholic. He becomes one as well, and he eventually walks away from the bar. It became a movie with Ben Affleck. I've never seen it. Um, but Moringer has made more of a name for himself as a ghostwriter. He wrote, which is a weird thing to say, but he wrote the Andre Agassi, uh, memoir open, which is a fantastic book. I, I read that out loud to my husband in bed. It was a wonderful, wonderful book. Wonderful. Which is a book that I have not read, but has been recommended to me repeatedly. And something that I wanted to look at myself, because as somebody who writes memoirs, I'm not at all against the idea of kind of being the ambassador for someone who has an amazing story, but maybe not access to the right words to help them get those words on the page. You know, this is my bid. If you're a famous person, like, say, Lindsay Lohan or Britney Spears, and you would like someone that knows about addiction, that knows about girlhood, that knows about pop culture to help you with your ghostwrite your memoir, I am here for you. And I like that all that both spare and open um, don't shy away from the dark parts of these person's stories. You know, they both, they both of those books kind of wrestle with the complications of people that have tabloid histories. You know, it's not a bunch of sunny bullshit of like, and then, you know, and, and everything was great or whatever. But I really had an objection to the way this book was written, like a very, very strong moral objection. Um, very early on, it was clear to me that this was not Harry's voice. And you made the observation that his actual voice was great. And you're right. But this was in the opening. This was entirely J.R. Moringer's voice. Completely. Completely. And it was so deeply offensive to me as a oh. memoir writer. And the way that you feel about journalism, where you start to cry, and that's how I feel about personal writing. I am also a journalist. It doesn't have that place close to my heart. What does is people telling their own stories because it is the most unique and beautiful carrier for the human voice that I know of in, in print. And when you take a medium that is designed for someone to tell their story and it is written in the voice of someone else. It offends me on such a deep level that I can't even... And, and also, it makes me so angry because one of the things that memoir does 
is that it asks you to kind of surface your internal complications to give us access to who you are inside. I was never convinced that that's what was happening here. This sounded like somebody that used to do what his, what his dad and his brother told him and became a person that did what his, what his wife told him. And what, like, there is no, the last, I'm sorry if this is a spoiler to anyone, the last pages are him releasing a bird. And I'm sorry, this person doesn't seem free at all. And But I don't think he, I I don't think he wants to be free. No, but he doesn't acknowledge that. Oh, I don't know, Sarah. Did you read it? Did you read the book? No, I'm telling you the last pages are him releasing a bird as though he's freed himself from this, the chains of the royal family. And, you know, this was actually something I saw in a tweet by the novelist Rebecca Mackay, who's uh, an award-winning writer who did The Great Believers. She's she's fantastic. But she was flipping through Spare at the airport and she says this is how it ends. Um, and she does a fake monologue where it says ghostwriter so has anything symbolic happened to you harry i don't know one time i find i found this bird ghostwriter licks pen its legs felt like eyelashes its wings like flower petals um he releases a bird into the air and that to me seems to be a story a a sim the symbolic uh the, the symbol of him fleeing the oppression of this childhood. Tell me if I'm wrong. So it seems to me that he had the uh, confusion and uh, of his childhood and um, being, I don't know, having to do what he was supposed to do. He went off to boarding school, kind of behaved badly, kind of found some sort of fraternity with people doing that. He then joined the army. And but and, and in, in between all these, he was like taking trips to Africa. And he, he makes he, he goes to great pains to say the freedom he will occasionally feel in these environments and that how it always craters something always, you know, his life comes back to crater him so that even if he feels fantastic in this one, you know, for three months here, inevitably, his world, his golden cage will come and find him. And that I think is actually true. Right. I, I mean, maybe you do, if you are this kind of person, you find a way to live and thrive in that golden cage. I don't know if that's possible. Maybe there are some monarchs, you know, like Elizabeth, who's able to do it. I mean, if you want to talk about a, a person that, at least to me, appeared extremely cold, it would be his his late grandmother. Um, but he then goes on again. I haven't gotten to the Meghan Markle part. Um, if he has gone on to another person telling him what to do, which I believe is likely the case, and which I believe if he if you were saying that like he is just completely this agglomeration of you know twenty first century malaises and problems, and and he it all rolled into one. Well, who has he allied himself with? He's allied himself with someone who is. I mean, I don't think she was. I, I don't know a whole lot about her, but I always think that she kind of was like a reality TV star, but she wasn't. No, she, was she? An act, she was an right. actress, although she right. had appeared on Deal or No Deal as the suitcase lady, but she was better known in that in that show Suits. But she she is perfect. I mean, perfect in terms of, you know, kind of beautiful and charming and, and vivacious. The camera loves her. I mean, there this is no doubt. Um to kind of inhabit the world that they've created. She needs him. 
he needs her. Um, I don't think he's looking for freedom. I don't no, I don't he think is. he is either, but I think the book sets up that he is. And it's a total pet peeve of mine because freedom has become one of these things like empowerment or agency or uh, happiness or love that sounds really good and sells a book, especially at the end. And most people aren't free. Most people don't actually want to be free. This is actually oh. the ugly truth of life. Most people want to be told what to do. It's easier that way. Or they want to live with, you know, structure equals freedom. We talk about that. Like you live within a marriage or you work for a company or you, you know, whatever. You go to class from nine in the morning till six at night. Like you want some sort of structure. So who, you know, who's to say this is not, you know, bliss for him? You know, maybe this, you know, and no, I'm not yes. saying it's not bliss no, no, no. for him. I'm saying it's not. It's that, that. In fact, I'm saying the opposite. I'm saying freedom is not bliss. I'm saying freedom is awful in a lot of ways. And, you know, I I guess I feel very um, I feel very fired up about this because this is one of the big themes of my second book, because I did become a woman who does. I'm the name of the book is unattached. I am single. I have no kids. I have the kind of freedom that gets repeatedly and continually sold to us, sold to us through books and movies and songs. And, and I think it is, it has been a mixed bargain to say the least. And, you know, I, I detest the way that so many memoir writers, and there's a couple that I'm not going to name, but they have blockbuster books. And, you know, that they present this kind of freedom as their story when their story is actually codependency or their story is actually, you know, just just following another trend. And yet it becomes these these people, these they become these sort of like pied pipers of of freedom when that is not at all what their story is. And I, I don't want to get into that so much because that's a rabbit hole and it's too it's too niche to me. But um, but back to Harry. I, I I think one of the other things that struck me, and this was only in the first 10 minutes, was the absolute tragedy that he really never knew his mom. And why I say that's a tragedy is not because it's very sad to lose your mom at a young age. It is. But it has allowed him to believe the absolute mythology of his mother as some sort of impeccable, perfect woman. It is very sad to listen to someone talk about their mother as though they were a constellation in the sky. Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa had nothing on her. Because what that tells me is that you will always be destined to not see your mother for the human that she was and that you will misjudge other people for their human frailties. That's very well put. I mean, he did know her till he was 12. So, you know, he knew her a bit. But um, but then apparently, and, and I don't know how much they uh, embellished this, until he was, oh, I don't remember, 17, 18, or 19, until he and his brother actually, which was is a bit strange, but also not, um, they, they wanted to drive through the tunnel where she had been killed at the exact um, at the exact speed limit that she had been killed to just sort of experience it. But once they had done that, or once Harry had done that, he wow. could accept that she actually wasn't coming back because he kept saying to William at the beginning and then just to us, the listener, I just thought, you know, she would tell us sometimes she just wanted to disappear. She just wanted to disappear. Right. And so I'm going to believe that she did that. And then at a certain point, William is like, but he, she wouldn't do that to us. She, she wouldn't He thought she us- pulled a Susan Meachin. Oh, Sarah. <laughs> Sarah. 
<laughs> what? It's callback. It's called That's a callback. Good. All right. We'll put a link to that. If you didn't listen to the ep- last episode, we'll, uh, you'll know who Susan Meacham is. But um, uh, Something about that paparazzi, uh, that death, though, that I wanted to bring up that I that I think is interesting. You know, you mentioned that Harry makes the had the comment that like the paparazzi are an, a pimple on the arse of the world or whatever he said. Mm-hmm. Well, the paparazzi, I mean, that is like, I mean, it's going to be hard to find fans that are defending them um, because that's a very vulturous profession. Although there is a tremendous class difference here. I mean, some of these people are trying to pay their bills. Meanwhile, some of these people were born with a gigantic golden spoon in their mouth, even if it gags them. But the thing that Michael Moynihan always brings up uh, on the fifth column about this moment that I did not know until he started saying it and I looked it up was that everyone frames that death as a because they were being chased by paparazzi, but the chauffeur was drunk and had been taking pills. And yeah. a later uh, investigation, whether you believe it or not, found that the paparazzi was not responsible for the death. It was the chauffeur's fault. Yeah, uh, but though there is... Apparently, um, yes, that is true. I've heard Michael say that. So I have no idea whether there was one car chasing them, zero cars chasing That's them. Like a four bunch, cars. but but it, but the driver, yes, the driver definitely was. He was drunk. That is that has been established. Um, but I do. I can say that I got to the point yesterday where after they had gone through the he. Harry asked someone who worked with the monarchy year for him. He's got all these bodyguards and stuff. Um, if he could get this, the the dossier on what actually happened in the and and in it were pictures of um, of the dead, yeah. including his mother, who looked apparently she looked fine. She did not. She was not banged up particularly. Wow. Obviously, internally she was. But he was wondering why there were all these like halos around her, and then he realized what they were. They were flash bulbs, and within uh, the photos you could see not just her rimmed, ringed with the flashes, but you could see images of other paparazzi taking pictures of her. Look, yeah, I, I, I do believe um, Harry has a definite problem with the press. Probably some of it is founded. Um, oh, some of sure. it is not, but that is a, that is a pretty tough image to realize that your mother is dead or dying there and what people are doing or taking pictures it's tough, you know, it's That's, tough. I, I mean, absolutely. No, I, yeah, I, absolutely. You know, By the way, is it normal in England for adult men to call their mother's mummy? I, I would, you know, English men apparently have some issues, you know, with moms and teachers and all that stuff. So yeah, I, I would say yes. I think mummy. Yes, I think so. That think squicked me out. Did it mummy? I think yeah, that's he normal. He kept calling her mummy and it squicked me out and why and it, it just it felt at a like it's too he's a he's a freaking grown man i don't call my mom mommy that would be really strange i don't know if mommy and mummy are the same because mummy mummy sounds too british mummy right you've got the british accent but they're basically the same formulation maybe there's mom there's mother mum, and there's there's mum, there's mother and there's mummy and I, to I, me, it sounds very childish and binky, like baby blanket. And and I'm going to get a pushback from our British listeners. But, you know, I'm just telling you how I experienced that, which it didn't feel. And, you know, and there's like one of the one of the parts that went viral was about him uh, putting um, SD Larder cream on his wang. 
Estee Lauder cream on his wang and being reminded of his mummy. And, and it just, it had really strong Oedipal vibes. And, you know, I had tweeted it like Dear Penthouse Forum because it... I- yeah, I saw that too. But when you, um, I actually read the the actual little part. I don't know in some tweet, and it it wasn't quite as, you know, quite as edible as they made it out to be. I also have questions. I really, really, really do have questions about a penis getting frostbitten. I mean, you your extremities do. Get, I have frostbite on my toes once. It's like you, you know, it's why would your penis not get frostbitten? Well, because your genitals tend to take care of themselves. Maybe yours do. <laughs> Mine requires several battery-operated <laughs> devices that I keep in a nightstand, so I don't. <laughs> well, I just, I've never heard of a penis getting frostbitten. I guess I should look this up a little bit. We should, uh, Sir, Sir Edward Hillary or whatever his name is, like, can penis, yeah, okay, are you Googling? Can yes. penises get frostbitten? Yes. Okay. No, I'm checking my bank account. You're checking your your the batteries in your in your fr- little friends. Um, I don't know. I've never heard of it. Maybe people just don't talk about it. Maybe it's not manly. Well, right. To talk about, I mean, you know, it's like okay. Well, penis well penis frostbite is rare. It can occur in extreme temperatures. Urologist Dr. Seth Cohen told Vice News last night. Last night, of course, because now this is in the is this in the news. I will say, I will say, and then I think we're going to move on to our bonus episode and talk to another person in a golden about in a golden cage. Um, uh, I will say, and this again is indulgent, kind of twenty first century indulgent, though it's always happened. Harry can indulge in his own like, oh, it was so hard for me, but look, I overcame, kind of thing. And so I would just wonder maybe a little bit about. Um, how frostbitten? Frostbitten. 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 How, how frostbitten? Bitten. So, Sarah, do you think that we might um, segue our next person that we want to talk about that I think there are some uh, real contrast, some parallels and some real contrasts here with Harry, at least in, in my estimation. And that would be someone we lost this week who is Lisa Marie Presley. We go from the son of a prince to the daughter of the king. That's right. We're going to do that in the bonus episode. So everybody stick with us. Sarah, see you in a bit. Uh, Nancy? Yes? I have a question for you. What is my, what is your question? What's the name of this goddamn podcast? The name of this podcast. I'm so glad that you remember this is Smoke Em If You Got Them. That's right. You got it. Come join us in the bonus. No matter what the world may say 